Amen. Thank you, fellows. Here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus paid it all. That's a great, great theme. And of course, that ties into the theme here. Without uh, God's manifestation of His love, we wouldn't be here tonight, and we certainly wouldn't be having a conference on extreme love. So, certainly appropriate song here before we begin the message. Well, it is good to be here tonight. It's good to see some friends from out of town that we get to know. And uh, it certainly is good to be back here. We, uh, my wife and I have for about 28 days. We were in a state we have only been in three times, I think, and that's the state of Arkansas. We were there for 28 days. And I'll be honest with you, I know this is going to sound strange, I fell in love with Arkansas. Unbelievable. Some great people down there. And it was uh, just some exciting meetings, God working. And yes, we did stop by the first Walmart. Okay, Wal Walton's 5 and 10. And we stopped by. There's a little hole in the wall. And we looked at the history of Sam Walton. Uh, my wife was more enamored than I was. But nonetheless, I guess that's because shopping is more her thing than it is mine. But anyway, uh, so we had a wonderful time down there in Arkansas. Now, there's something else I need to mention. Um, I'm wearing an unbelievable tie. Now, of course, most of you, if you ever impressed by my dress, go thank my wife. Okay, you understand that. Okay, but um, this is an amazing tie. Now, I need to tell this because I don't want to offend anybody. It's a tie that changes colors. Now, you may not know this, but if you are from Michigan, this tie is blue and maize. That's what it is, blue and maize. But if you're from Ohio, it's blue and mustard. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, okay. So it gets rid of the maize and turns to mustard. Now, if you don't get that, you don't know Big Ten football, okay, that's for sure. But if you get that, the greatest rivalry in college football is between Ohio State and Michigan, if you haven't figured that out. So if you're from either of those states, you know what's going on. It's part of it, okay? And uh, here in Milwaukee, uh, I don't know that there's a whole lot of rivalries, except that I have learned this, that all us Cub fans really do relate with the Brewers on one point and one point only. We both hate the Cardinals. We can't stand the Cardinals. Okay. But anyway, that's one thing we can agree on. Okay. Now, if you're not a sports fan, that's all right. I'm not staying there. Okay. We're going to move on uh, because uh, we'll do that. There won't be a baseball season anyway. So um, uh, that's uh, uh, well, it just is kind of what's going to happen. Okay. Now, uh, anyway, baseball, all of you millennials are totally yawning and bored. You have no use for baseball. And see, the Major League Baseball haven't figured it out. Uh, baseball fans are old. Okay, that's what they are. Okay, they're old. And so they're in trouble, huge trouble. Okay, but that's, uh, that's not where I'm going either. Okay, now, I'm not sure where that came from, but um, I'm trying to lock in the baseball fans, and that's anybody about 55 and up. Okay, so they're locked in. The millennials are yawning. Okay, here we go. Okay, Colossians chapter number 1. Let's go to verse 29. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 29. Now, I'll be de dealing on Tuesday with the subject of symptoms of performance-based Christianity. Really, this conference is contrasting two ways to live the Christian life. And tonight, we're going to take the other side. On Tuesday, I'll be dealing with performance-based Christianity, which is a major problem. And those of you that will be in the session on Tuesday, could I encourage you to do something? When you walk in, would you ask the Lord, Lord, if there is any performance-based Christianity mindset in my life, would you reveal it to me? Because I don't know about you, it is not intuitive for the Christians to live uh, the biblical way to live the Christian life. Uh, intuitively, we want to be performance-based. That's where we just go. And so many times there's residual effects of performance-based Christianity. And can I say this clearly? It's killing us. It's killing us. And so tonight we're going to lay out the extreme, the antithesis to performance-based Christianity is really Christ-based Christianity. And it's completely different. There's only two ways to look at theology, really, from this particular um, a way to, to frame it up, either you look at theology as egocentric or you look at theology as Christocentric. And pretty much those are the two ways that you can live the Christian life, either with an egocentric, which is basically work salvation, work sanctification, works assurance, works revival, etc. Okay, and we're going to deal tonight with the opposite of that, which is a Christocentric theology. I don't believe in work salvation. I believe in salvation by faith. I don't believe in work sanctification. I believe in sanctification by faith. I don't believe in works assurance. I believe in assurance by faith. I don't believe in works revival. I believe in revival by faith. Uh, I don't believe in works Christian life. I believe in the Christian life by faith. And that's what we're going to deal with tonight. Uh, we're going to use a certain picture trying to help us understand this. I know I've got folks out here who've heard this message a few times, but I hope you bear with me and ask the Lord to, uh, to illumine the truth perhaps in a fresh way. They say, I think you only remember about 10% of a message. So if I preach it 10 times, you'll get it all. Okay, so, um, 
So if you're not there yet, well, you can listen here. Maybe you'll get the other another 10% you can stack on the deal uh, here. And by the way, you always preach it different. Every audience, you preach it different, especially when there's a lot of sinners in the room. And tonight I'm just looking out here. I'm seeing sinners everywhere. Unbelievable. We got a room full of them. So this could, I could be fired up tonight. I'm seeing a bunch of guys that travel with me. Man, they're bad off. I know how bad they are. So I'll be preaching to them tonight. Uh, we'll get to see Mateo there. He's, got, he's ready to go. I can tell that. Okay, I don't know why Mateo always gets my jokes. But anyway, it's because I know I love him and he knows it. Okay, so, uh, but... Um, Let's, uh, let's ask the Lord to give us a, uh, a fresh illumination here, and then we'll dive into the text. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. And we are asking that you would just uh, turn the lights on. And if there's a Christian who's starting to get it but needs a further illumination, would you give it? Would you just help us here at the beginning to see what we're really talking about this week? As other angles will be dealt with, would you just uh, help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Many Saturdays, of course, I get up and I'm ready to travel to the next place, and I'll get my pickup truck ready to go. Usually it's already fuel, fuel. Sometimes I have to fuel up. Many times I'll run down to Dunkin' Donuts. Most of you know that. And I want to say a big shout out to Brother Wantlin who brought me a Dunkin' Donuts today. Okay. Uh, but anyway, and I'll get my Dunkin' Donuts coffee and I'll rev up that big truck. I'll hook up my RV and head down the road. And uh, sometimes when you're out west, you know that you're going to have a few climbs. And of course, as an RV, uh, you always kind of want to anticipate uh, hills and valleys and all those kind of things, because when you got 14,000 pounds behind you, you want to kind of know what's going on. And so uh, uh, the biggest climbs, of course, are out west, Interstate 80, Interstate 70, Interstate 40, going across the Continental Divide. How many have ever driven across the western Continental Divide. Many people, okay, some have, and particularly on Interstate 70, but you can get it on other interstates. You start this climb, and when you have a, a stick, and I know most of you millennials have no idea what a stick is, but uh, some of the old people who can tell you what a stick is, but anyway, uh, you're in fifth gear, and man, you hit that thing. You hit that hill as hard as you can, and it's not long, man. You're down to fourth. You're, those, those R's start declining. You go down to four. Of course, they pick up a little bit. And then you get behind a semi that's blinking. And you go, oh, what a bummer. And man, you're down to third. And man, where you don't want to go is down to second. But there's times I've been down to second gear climbing up that hill. And somewhere along the line, about eight miles up that hill, the R's start kind of revving up a little bit. And you're thinking you're going to be able to upshift one up to third gear. And uh, you'll be realizing you're at the top. When you get to the top, there's a brown sign that the United States government put there, and it says this, United States Western Continental Divide. Now, do you know what that means? It actually, if you're a raindrop, is highly significant. I know most of us aren't a raindrop, but if you're a raindrop, it's highly significant. Because if you fall on the western side of that Continental Divide, it's going to be bad news. You know why? You're going to have to go into the Pacific Ocean, which means there's one of three states you're going to have to go through that are really a problem. Okay, but anyway, well, we won't say a whole lot more about that. But anyway, uh, that's run side. I wouldn't want to be on the western side. I want to be on the eastern side. You know why? I'm going to go down to the Mississippi River and travel down yeah, right in there into the um, Gulf of Mexico. Now, I don't know about you. The Pacific Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico are two vastly different destinations. One of them is going to touch the coast of Florida, and one of them is going to touch the coast of, I hate to mention it, California. Okay, but anyway, and... Uh, but literally a few inches can determine the destination of that raindrop. Did you know there's a continental divide in the Christian or in salvation? Let me start with that. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, you're going to fall on the wrong side of the continental divide and you'll die lost in your sins, spend eternity without the Lord in an awful place Jesus talked about and often called hell. If you fall on the right side of the continental divide, you end up uh, in heaven, sins forgiven, eternity with the Lord Jesus, everlasting joy. Wow. There could be two stark different destinations in all of the universe in heaven and hell. Would you agree with me about that? And it all determines on which side of the theological continental divide you fall on. Tonight, if you want to get the technical name for this message, it's God's theological continental divide. God's theological continental divide. Now, I'm not going to be talking about salvation because I would assume most everybody in this room agrees with me. You realize that there came a day you knew you couldn't get to heaven by being good by doing, by religion. And you came to an understanding that the only way to heaven was to trust Jesus to do everything that you could never do. You had to trust him to wash your sins away, get you, keep you out of hell, give you an everlasting life. And the moment you did, you fell on the correct side of the continental divide, which will have eternal consequence. Okay, we get that. But did you know there's a continental divide in the Christian life? 
You're either falling on one side or the other. If you fall on the wrong side of the continental divide, you're going to be pretty discouraged. Most of your Christian life will be characterized by discouragement. There'll be a darkness in your heart. There'll be pretty much a lot of spiritual pessimism. There'll be a lot of defeat. Won't be a lot of answers to prayer. There'll be some. There'll be some blessings, but not a lot. If you fall on the right side of the continental divide, there'll be a lot of blessings. There'll be a uh, lot of optimism, a lot of answers to prayer. Uh, there'll be a, just a, a, an outlook of divine expectancy. You see, whichever side you fall on really makes a difference in how your Christian life is lived. You say, okay, preacher, how in the world? Uh, do I know what, how to, which one do I, do I, do I am I gonna, how can I, I want to get on the right side. How am I going to get there? Well, that's a great question. That's the balance of the message. Several years ago, I was in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I grew up in Chicago. They call it the Windy City. I'm telling you right now, Chicago has nothing on Wyoming. If you've ever been to Wyoming, you know what I'm talking about. Unbelievable, most windy place I've ever been in my life. Of course, you can't buy a tree in Wyoming. I've never seen one. Okay, but anyway, wind just comes across and whacks you. But anyway, I wrecked a trailer in Wyoming. That's why I have bitterness against Wyoming. But anyway, I was in Cheyenne, Wyoming, preaching a revival meeting. It was probably Wednesday. It could have been Tuesday, midweek. I went to the back lobby, and a young lady about 22 years old came up to me, and she said, Brother Van Gelderen, I have never heard what you preach tonight. She said, I grew up, man, and she named it Independent Baptist Church. And could I say, if I named that Independent Baptist Church, if you knew anything about the Independent Baptist Church movement, you would have recognized the name of it, Significant Church. She said, I grew up at that church. She said, a year ago I moved out here. She said, I have never heard what you preach tonight. Now, as a preacher, sometimes you don't know how to take that. She said, I always thought the Christian life was 50-50, 50% me and 50% God. So the question for all of us tonight is how much of the Christian life is God and how much of the Christian life is us? Because the answer to that question determines which side of the continental divide you fall on. Did you know that? Well, let's look at the verse, verse 29. Paul is talking about the great truth that Christ lives in us. And then verse 28, he says, whom we preach, talking about Jesus, warning every man, teaching every man. In other words, I want you to understand how important this truth is that Jesus lives in you. Warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That's the idea, the only way. This truth is central to Christian maturity. And then he says, whereunto I also labor, talking about the Lord Jesus and this wonderful truth that he lives in us, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Did you notice that Paul is laboring? Did you notice that he's striving? These are very active words. They give you the picture of someone out in the field with a hoe, sweat pouring off the brow. They are laboring, striving. So you say, well, preacher, how much of the Christian life is us? And how much of the Christian life is God? Clearly, it says, according to his working, which works in me mightily. So certainly, God's not out of the equation. Certainly, he's a part of it as well. Many times, we look at a passage like this, and we think, well, it must be 50-50, maybe 60-40, 70-30, 80-20, 90-10, maybe 95-5. How much of the Christian life is us, and how much of the Christian life is God? Well, here's what I'd like us to do tonight. I want you to get out your spiritual looking glasses and become spiritual Sherlock Holmes with me, could we? And we're going to look at three clues and these clues, I believe, will help us understand, and then we'll give you an illustration of these clues to help you understand what the Christian life's all about. Now, I want to tell you something, friends. If what I just described about the Christian life on the one side seems too good to be true, you do not understand the truth I'm about to preach. Because the Christian life should be characterized by divine optimism, by supernatural expectancy, by peace, by answers to prayer, by blessing. By the fingerprints of God on your life, don't miss this, every day. That's how it's meant to be lived. Okay, you say, well, preacher, how? Okay, let's uh, get our spiritual looking glasses out. Three clues. And, of course, most of you know where I'm going, but I want you to investigate these clues and, uh, because I want you to become more convinced. Look at verse number 6 of chapter number 2. We find our first, very first clue. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Now, for all you English scholars out here, and I realize the scholar is going to be used very loosely, but there's two verbs in that sentence. Did you notice that? Now, you have to understand, when I was in sixth grade, I had one of the greatest teachers I think I've ever had in all my life taught me English. Some of, her, some of you knew her because she used to teach her. She's now with the Lord. But Megan Gruber is her only daughter and uh, now to, uh, married to, to Matthew Weber. But uh, she taught me almost every bit of English I ever knew in all my life. I was actually bored my entire high school in English. 
because she had taught it so well. But what she drilled in us, and we hated it, she drilled in us, don't miss this, diagramming sentences. I'm telling you, I can tell you one thing. When I die, I'm going to have my time in purgatory cut way down. You know why? Because I diagram sentences. You know, I've already been there. You know what I'm talking about? Man, we hated it. We fought it every moment. But I'm telling you, I look back, I thank the Lord for a teacher who taught me how to diagram sentences. I hate to tell you this. I look at a Bible verse, I start diagramming. And Dr. Paul said, amen, hallelujah, glory to God. Okay, but anyway. But there's two, uh, there's two verbs in this uh, particular verse of Scripture. It says, as you've therefore received, there's the first one, Christ Jesus the Lord. Second one, so walk ye in him. Now there's two different tenses. Whenever you have different tenses in a verse, you always try to understand why. Because there's, there's usually, there's got to be a reason why. The very first tense received is what they call the aorist tense, which is your basic, pretty much the basic tense in the Greek language. And I don't want to read it into it too much, but largely it views the action as a whole. And of course, we all know this is talking about salvation, and I think we all understand salvation's not a process, it's an event. It's an action that's a whole. One day you're lost, going to hell. The next, uh, you trust Jesus, receive Christ Jesus the Lord, and uh, that's an event. It's a, it's a point in time. It's a, what I call the salvation moment. So God says there's something that occurs in that reception of eternal salvation that says, so walking in him, and that word walk is in the present tense, which is linear or durative. It's a process. Salvation's a point in time, we all know this, but the Christian life is a process. From the moment you get saved to the moment you die and faith becomes sight, we call that sanctification in theology. It's the Christian life. Now, the Bible says there's something you need to understand because just like you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, that is how you live the Christian life. If you really want to understand the dynamic that makes the Christian life work, you've got to understand what happened at salvation. So I'm going to help you out just a moment. Uh, you just, yeah, just fire me an answer back. I think most of you will get it. When you got saved, how much of the saving did Jesus do? He did all of it. And how much did you do? And the answer is, you didn't do any of it. Now, I don't know about you. I'm glad that when I got saved, Jesus did all the saving. You know why? Because if one one-hundredth of one percent depended on me, I would die in my sins and go to hell. And you would too. I don't care how small you make the percentage. If going to heaven depends on you at all, you're going to die lost. And my friend, if you're out here right now trusting anything to get you to heaven other than fully trusting Jesus Christ, you are lost. See, so when you get saved, what happens? You receive Christ Jesus the Lord. In other words, you realize, I can't save myself. I can't wash my sins away. I can't get me to heaven. I can't keep myself out of hell. So I'm going to trust Jesus to do it. So as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk ye in him. So could we say that salvation is 0-100? Could we say that? Yeah, we could. I'm thankful that it's 0-100, aren't you? Okay, so if salvation is 0-100, it seems to indicate that that's what the Christian life is. So walk ye in him. So it's 0-100. You say, now wait a second, preacher. I see your logic there. But you've got a problem because your verse you just quoted in verse 29 says Paul's laboring, he's striving. How can that be zero? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? Certainly doesn't seem to be zero. So what are we talking about? Well, I love theological tension. I'm going to be honest with you. I absolutely love it. Why? Because often at the apex of theological tension, there is a phenomenal truth. So let's keep digging. The second truth I have come to understand is something Jesus helped us understand in John 15, 5. He said, without me, help me out now, ye can do, anybody know? Nothing. Now what does that mean? That means everything Jesus Ask us to do. We need him or it's going to be impossible. In other words, I say this. Everything about the Christian life is impossible unless Jesus enables us. So the Christian life uh, is impossible. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. Several years ago, I was preaching. There's some mountains. How many have ever flown into Los Angeles? Can I see your hands, please? Ever flown? In? Okay, several of you have. That's unusual. Hardly ever get hands on that one. But anyway... You're flying into Los Angeles. On the north, there's the San Bernardino Mountains. And of course, there's hardly clouds in Los Angeles. There's smog, but there's no clouds. But anyway, and so you got the mountains, the San Bernardino Mountains to the north. And then you, of course, got the desert where all the golf courses are. And then you come across some mountains in between the L.A. metro area and the desert. And there was a camp, and that's those mountains that I did a camp in several years ago, about 150 teenagers. And I uh, remember it was, I think, a Wednesday night. Could have been Tuesday. I don't know. But a dear young pastor from L.A., he's probably 24, 
he got up and he was giving a testimony and he said something that bothered me. I knew he was sincere, so I wasn't bothered with his spirit. I just felt what he said wasn't true. He said to the young people, now listen to me, young people. I know the Christian life's hard. I know the Christian life's difficult. And he went on. And I'm going to be honest with you. When he said that, I thought, I don't agree with that. Man, I just do not agree with that. And so the next night, I didn't want to embarrass the guy. I knew he was sincere, but I felt like it had to be corrected. It was so wrong that I knew if kids bought into it, it would hinder their Christian life. So I felt like the next night I had to correct it. So I said, now listen to me, young people. The Christian life's not hard. The Christian life's not difficult. It's impossible. <laughs> now I'm telling you, friends, if you get a hold of the fact that the Christian life's impossible, you will be free. You say, why will you be free? Because you will recognize something. Everything about the Christian life you will need, don't miss this, divine intervention. Isn't that good? <laughs> I don't know about you, friends. It's encouraging when you realize it's impossible. Have you ever noticed things about impossible? Doesn't matter how long you train to do something impossible, you still can't do it. You know why? Because it's impossible. Have you known that? How many of you dream? I mean, like dream dreams. Can I see? Okay. Oh, great. Man, most audiences, nobody raises their hands. I'm thinking, what is this? Man, I, the most exciting things that have ever happened to me were in my dreams. I mean, if you've missed out on your dreams, you're missing out on life. I mean, I've had people chase me, trying to kill me. Unbelievable. What an adrenaline rush. And then you couldn't run. It's like slow motion. You're thinking, why can't I run? I can run, but I can't in my dream. And, and you know what I'm talking about? Okay, yeah. Chased, you know. And Man, I'm telling you, I've had some exciting dreams. You know, I've fallen off cliffs. I'm telling you, God is merciful on dreams because whenever you fall off a cliff, you always wake up before you go splat on the canyon floor. I've always been grateful for that. I've never had to watch myself die. Okay, but anyway, dreams are interesting. They really are. But I'm telling you, there's one thing dream I have. I haven't had in a while, but I'm telling you, I love this dream. I can fly. Yeah, I can fly. How many have ever dreamed you could fly? Oh, I'm telling you, I love that dream. Man, I just get off Ruby Road, fly over here to church. Unbelievable. And I'm telling you, every time I can fly in a dream, I wake up, I am so bummed out. I'm thinking, I can't fly after all. Unbelievable. But you know, without any help, you know what? I don't care how often you try to fly, you're not going to be able to do it. You can flap your, your arms, you can do whatever, but it's not going to work. Why? Because it's impossible. See, we, we all understand that. We get impossibilities. And here's the thing I want to prove to you. Everything about the Christian life is not hard. It's not difficult. It's impossible. The reason some of you have been so defeated in your Christian life is you were endeavoring to do something that was impossible. And you know what happened? It didn't work. So let me just go, go with this. How much effective praying can you do without the Holy Spirit? How much? None. Okay, how much... Uh, how much of the Bible can you be spiritually illuminated by without the Holy Spirit? None. Oh, none. How many people can you win to the Lord without the Holy Spirit? None. How many other Christians can you bless and encourage without the Holy Spirit? None. Oh, yeah. Okay, how much true victory can you have? Now, you say, preacher, what do you mean true victory? Well, first of all, I've got to tell you what false victory is. False victory is like the wife in the room comes to the pastor or the assistant pastor and says, Pastor, you'd be proud of me. My husband did it to me again. He hit my buttons. He pulled my lever. The lava started coming up. I thought of a million sarcastic things I wanted to say, but I clenched my teeth and I didn't say anything. I had victory. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. Saying nothing is better than grievous words which stir up anger. I'll give you that. But that's not true victory. You will say, preacher, what's true victory? Your husband hits your buttons, pulls your lever, and you don't even want to say anything you shouldn't. You say, preacher, that's impossible. That was kind of my point. <laughs> so how much true victory can you have without the Holy Spirit? And the answer is none. Everything about the Christian life, it's not hard, it's not difficult, it's impossible. And you get a hold of that, you'll be free. Because many times we're endeavoring to do the impossible and we wonder why we keep failing. It's like trying to fly and realize I can't do this. Okay, so the Christian life's not hard, not difficult, it's impossible, number three. The third clue I'd like to give us here tonight is one of those, how do I say this, truths that we have to get a hold of because as American believers, we're more influenced by culture than we realize. And in our culture, there is something that is really worshipped and valued, and that is physical strength. You ever notice that? Physical strength. You ever watch sports much? Uh, our culture is enamored with physical strength. 
You know, football players are sometimes touted because they can bench press 600 pounds. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I can't imagine bench pressing 600 pounds. You know, when you can barely bench press the bar, 600 kind of seems impossible. You know what I'm talking about. Okay, some of you can't bench press the bar either. Okay, but okay, but um, uh, the point is we're enamored in our culture with strength. We get strength. We talk about it. So when we read the Bible, we may not even think it. We read power, might, strength, and we almost assume that it's physical. But often in the Bible, it's not physical. It's spiritual. How about this one? I can do all things through Christ, which... That's not talking about physical strength. It's talking about spiritual strength. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. That's not talking about physical strength. That's talking about spiritual strength. And it's not just talking, I want you to understand, it's not talking about our physical, uh, spiritual strength. It's talking about His. His might. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. If you'll remember when Paul prayed three times to have the thorn in the flesh taken away, the Lord Jesus came to him and said, my strength is... Uh, Sufficient, or my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength, Jesus' strength, is made perfect in anybody know? Weakness. The word weakness comes from a word that is the word strength with an alpha. Now, if you know anything about the Greek language, you don't really have to know this about Greek language because it's true in English. Many times when you have a word and you put an alpha or an A before it, it negates the word. For instance, the word theist in English is a word, a theist is somebody who believes in deity. Doesn't mean they're saved, they just believe there's a God. Could be all kinds of theists, but uh, a theist is somebody who believes in God. So if you take an A and put it before the word theist, does it change the definition at all? An atheist. Well, it completely negates it. How much does an atheist believe in God? And the answer is, not at all. See, the idea, I like what one commentator says about this root word. It's the idea of strengthlessness. My strength is made perfect in what? Our complete strengthlessness. I put it this way sometimes. The end of self is the beginning of God. But the truth is, self is already bankrupt. We just haven't realized it yet. See, so the idea is simply this, friends. That we are absolutely, you know how much strength, maybe I put it this way. You know how much spiritual strength you and I have in and of ourselves without Jesus? Do you know how much? Do you know how much strength right now you have in and of yourself without Jesus? And the answer is, you and I don't have any. Isn't that exciting? It should be. Because Jesus said, my strength is made perfect in our weakness, our complete absence of strength. Talking if you're looking at that from a spiritual standpoint. That's why the Apostle Paul got excited. He said, most gladly, therefore, well, I'd rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In my sanctified imagination, I see Paul pulling off the sandals, pitching them in the air and said, hallelujah, I'm strengthless, hallelujah, I'm weak, I'm powerless, hallelujah. Why? Because he knew that that embracing that was the beginning of Christ's strength. You have to embrace your bankruptcy. You and I are bankrupt of spiritual strength. That's why we, a moment ago on the verses, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might, not ours. The very verse here, Colossians 1.29, Wherefore also I labor, striving according to His working, which worketh in me mightily. Wow. So I'm telling you, friends, that's a great truth. God's, we're bankrupt. But he has given us the strength we need to live the Christian life. And it begins when we begin to praise him for our bankruptcies, so to speak. It's in the plural. That word infirmities is literally the same word, strengthlessness. Is, it's plural. That's the same word as uh, weakness there in that text of Scripture. But the point I want us to get a hold of is your absolute absence of strength is necessary for this particular truth. So you say, okay, preacher, I get it. I'm, I'm beginning to understand it. I'm completely bankrupt of spiritual strength. That's what we are, completely bankrupt of spiritual strength. Now you say, okay, preacher, I'm getting it, but how, what does it look like? Boots on the ground, uh, how, how do you live it? Okay, what does it look like? Okay, just in daily life. Well, that's a great question. So what does it look like? What does 0-100 look like? Well, what I'd like you to do is take a, a story from the Bible that helps us understand this. God gives us many pictures in the Bible that help us understand spiritual truth. God graciously does that, but let me give you this one. Well, you've heard it before, but here it is. Peter walking on the water. You know what I love about Peter walking on the water is this. Walking on the water is not, um, it's not hard. Did you know that? Walking on the water is not hard. It's not difficult. It's impossible. 
You could train for 20 years to walk on water, and 20 years later, guess what? You'd be no closer to walking on the water than when you started. Now, obviously, in January in Wisconsin, we can walk on the water, but that's not fair, okay? Sometimes I, in the book, we got a joke I sometimes tell, but I've learned when I tell it down south, they're, they're thinking, okay, you're thinking about it because they're water. They always got water. They don't have ice. Okay, but anyway, so uh, yeah, but that doesn't count. Okay, we're talking about the liquid stuff. Is it, is it impossible? Is it hard? Is it difficult to walk on water? And the answer is, well, no, it's not hard. It's not difficult. It's impossible. So since it's impossible, nobody's ever done it, right? Nobody has ever walked on water, right? I mean, it's impossible, right? <laughs> well, you say, no, preacher, there's two people in all of human history and only two, right? Jesus and Peter. Well, you say Jesus doesn't count. He's deity. That doesn't count. I don't want to preach right now on the hypostatic union, but this would be a good time to tell it because I think Jesus had to walk on water in a certain sense like Peter did. But I'll just leave that one alone for the moment uh, so we don't have to theologically unpack that. But let's just take Peter. You know why? Because we can identify with Peter. I really do love Peter. I've said this before. One of the, I, I'm telling you, one of the things I like about Peter is I can identify with him. I call Peter um, the perpetual junior hire. That's what I call him. You say, why do you call him that? Because Peter was always sticking his foot in his mouth. That's why. And not only that, Peter was speaking without thinking. Have you ever worked with a junior hire? Why did you do that? You know, why did you throw the paint at the wall? Why did you do that? I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't thinking. <laughs> Why well, tell junior hires, don't worry, about sixth grade, something happens to your brain. It turns to mush. About ninth grade, it reforms. You become a normal human being again. But don't worry about it. It'll all work out. I remember my dad pulling me in at sixth grade and saying, now, Jim, this is going to be rough. We're going through junior high. We'll get through it together. I'm thinking, what are you talking about, Dad? Now I know what he was talking about. Okay, you know. And like I've said before here, I love making fun of junior hires because they have no idea you're making fun of them. Okay, but anyway, they'll pick it up sooner or later. Okay, but... That's Peter. I mean, Peter. Have you ever noticed, I, when I get to heaven, I think most of us are going to say, Peter, why did you say that? That's going to be the major question Peter's going to get. Why did you say that? Because there's a lot of things Peter thinking, what was he thinking? And I don't know. I'd like to find out what he's thinking, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be a junior hire. I don't know. I'm not sure what I was thinking. Well, this is one of those classic moments. Here they are. You have to understand, we have a hard time relating with this story. Because they had been on the water all night in a storm. Scholars say that the route they took was probably five miles. The Bible says they were in the midst of the sea, which is the midst of the Sea of Galilee, which is seven miles, seven miles wide, 14 miles, if it was those parameters back then. But it was probably a corner on the corner, probably about a five-mile trip, which means they were probably two to two and a half miles from shore. Now, that's, that's a long way. It was a storm, which means there were no lights up there because you don't have any uh, moon or any stars. You get cloud cover, and of course you have wind and you got waves, and it's total darkness because every single lamp would have been blown out. Can you imagine being on that all night long in a storm with no lights? I don't know about you, that's just a freaky feeling. I would not want to do that. I really would not. But they're seasoned fishermen. They're getting through on this thing. And the Bible says Jesus came to them on the fourth watch of the night. Now, the fourth watch of the night is, I think, between three and six. My personal opinion is it had to be closer to six. Because you know how it is when you have storm cover and you have the sun come up, that, that gray dawning where you can kind of see out there and probably mist coming off the sea. And they see Jesus walking on the water. And, of course, the Bible says they cried out for fear. And Jesus responds, be not afraid. It is I. I, a few years back, did a little study on be not afraid and fear not throughout the Bible. They're everywhere. And the thing I love about it is the answer is always the same. Fear him not. Fear not. I'm with thee. The answer is always, I'm here. Don't fear. Okay, so that's exactly what Jesus said. He said, be not afraid. I fear not. I'm here. Uh, it's I. And Peter, of course, makes that famous statement. Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Now, when I get to heaven, I'm going to say, Peter, why did you say that? <laughs> because the Lord answers with one word. Come. Now, you have to understand that's what they call a first-class condition, which means Peter was not saying, Lord, is it you? Is it not you? If it's you, would you bid me come? No, what he was saying is, Lord, it's the if statement is assumed to be true, which means he's saying, Lord, I know it's you, so bid me come. And Jesus responded with one word in the imperative mood, which means come was a command. Now Peter's in a problem 
Because if he stays in the boat, he's disobeying Jesus. But if he gets out of the boat, he needs a miracle. Because walking on water is not hard. Walking on water is not difficult. It's impossible. Now I want to ask you a few questions because I want you to begin to understand what we're talking about here. When Peter got out of the boat, did he use muscles, physical strength to do so? And the answer is, well, yeah, he had to. Jesus didn't throw him out of the boat. He had to grab the side. He had to come over, you know, and he had to step on the water. And then he had to start walking toward Jesus. He had to move muscles. I've said this before, but when I get to heaven, I'm going to say, Peter, when you walked on the water, what did it feel like? Did it feel firm? Was it like pavement or was it a little bouncy? Or did it feel like a bouncy house? What was it like? And I know what Peter's going to say. What's a bouncy house? That's what he's going to say. But Peter's starting to walk on the water toward the Lord Jesus. Now, he's using physical strength. But my second question is this. How much was Peter trusting his physical strength to enable him to walk on the water? And the answer is, not at all. See, that's the Christian life. The Christian life is obeying Jesus, using physical muscles, getting out of the boat, but trusting Jesus to enable you to do what you could never do unless he enabled you to do it. Since the Christian life is impossible, you need Jesus to enable you to do it. But in order for that to happen, you have to obey Jesus using physical strength, but you're not trusting the physical strength. You're trusting Jesus to enable you to do the impossible. You say, preacher, what are you talking about? You've been praying for your next door neighbor, you're burdened for him. And the Holy Spirit says, why don't you go invite him to the conference or whatever. You know what you have to do? You have to get physical strength. Maybe text him or physical strength and go next door and knock on that door. You have to use physical strength. But here's how 0-100 works. You're trusting Jesus to enable you to do the impossible. You can't touch his heart. There are certain things you can't do. You can get out of the boat, but you've got to trust Jesus to enable you to do what only he can enable you to do. Are you seeing it, friend? See, the issue could be a variety of things in life. It could be getting right. I've known many young men who are struggling with secret sin and realize, you know what? I need to come clean. This is going to be tough. You know what they have to do? Get out of the boat. Sometimes go to a pastor, go to a youth pastor, go to a dad, go to a mom, sit down and say, hey, listen, I need to tell you about a secret sin in my life. You know what they're trusting? They're trusting God to enable them to do the impossible. Years ago, there were two brothers that came to the conference here years ago. We called it the, uh, the Teen uh, Holiness Conference years ago. And uh, they both came. They didn't want to come, but their parents sent them here. And uh, they bought them plane tickets. They balked the whole way, but ended up coming. And, and uh, both got right with God, remarkably right with God. When they came home, they both knew what they had to do. One gave the testimony that I knocked on my parents' door. He said, I thought life was over. He said, here my parents were in the ministry and I've been sneaking all kinds of stuff behind their back. He said, I thought life was over. I'm going to be grounded for life. I'm done. But he said, I knew what I had to do. He said, I just best I knew trusted God. He said, I knocked on that bedroom door. My, walked into my parents, sat down on the bed and he said, I don't know how to explain it. He said, I tell, started telling my parents all the junk I was doing behind their back. And he said, God was there. The other one said, I said, Dad, can we go on a walk? They went on a walk, went down to a park, sat down on a park bench. He said, I don't know how to explain it. He said, I opened my mouth, began to tell my dad all the stuff I'd been sneaking behind his back. And he said, God helped me. So they both were giving the testimony, friends. They got out of the boat but trusted Jesus to enable them to do what they knew they could not do unless Jesus enabled them to do it. It's the supernatural intervention, but it never happens when you're in the boat. It's like this. Imagine the 12 disciples the next day. 11 of them go home and say, you're not going to believe what happened last night. You know what happened last night? We were out in the Sea of Galilee in the boat and we were floating on water. Unbelievable. And their family looks at them and thought, I thought that's what boats were supposed to do. You know, if you stayed in the boat, it was just natural. But maybe Peter went home and said, you're not going to believe what happened last night. I got out of the boat and Jesus enabled me to walk on water. You know what walking on water is? It has the fingerprints of God on it. May I say this? If you're out here and say, well, preacher, that's not me. I'm not a very good Christian. May I say God's design for every believer in this room is to walk on water every day. You see, that's the right side of the continental divide. And you say, well, I don't live there very often. Well, I'm telling you, friends... It's not too hard. In fact, that's the whole idea. 
It's impossible, so you're trusting Jesus to enable you to do the impossible. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You say, well, preacher, I know what's going to happen. I'll get out of the boat. I'll, just like Peter, take a few steps. I'm going to get distracted with the wind and the waves, and down I'm going to go. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, if you get out of the boat, it's not a matter if you will sink. It's a matter of when. Oh, you say, preacher, thanks for being honest. Most preachers wouldn't be that honest. But you're being honest. I'm going to stay in the boat. Well, don't stop there. So what did Peter do when he took his eyes off Jesus and started to sink? I'll tell you, his prayer life improved at that moment. But I will tell you, at that moment he didn't, I'm all for the hour with God, but he didn't do the hour with God at that moment. You know what I call those? Flare prayers. You with me on flare prayers? Three words. You notice what he did not say? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, blah, 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 blah. No, he didn't do that. He cut right to the chase. Lord, save me. Now, this is going to shock you. Do you know what Jesus did? I know this is going to really shock you. He saved him. That's what he did. Amen. You ever heard the terminology accepting Jesus Christ as your personal, help me out now, as your personal Savior? We just say that and we don't really think about it. What that means is this. Have you ever thought about accepting Jesus Christ as your personal lifeguard? Accepting Jesus Christ as your personal rescue worker? Accepting Jesus Christ as your personal EMT? Accepting Jesus Christ as your personal fireman? You ever thought about doing that? You say, what are you saying, preacher? What are you talking about? Every single analogy I just gave, word I just gave, is simply a picture of a physical Savior. In fact, Jesus, in a certain sense, is all of those things, in a spiritual sense. See, I want you to understand, when you got saved, Jesus' saving work didn't stop, it started. And you carry inside of you every day a personal Savior. It's, it's like this, friends. The, the, the illustration's different because Peter's personal rescuer, Jesus, was outside of him. But our personal rescuer is inside of us. And every day of your Christian life, there is a, in your heart, if you're saved, a personal rescuer. And I'm going to be just that honest with you. And if you want to verify with my wife, she'd be more than happy to tell you the truth. I keep my personal rescuer really busy. Some of you are way better Christians than I am. And you don't really maybe keep your personal rescue as busy as I do. I keep him busy all the time. And I work with Brother Bosler. He even keeps him busier than I do. I'm telling you the truth. I'm just teasing, kind of. But anyway, <laughs> the point is we all know we, we need to say a personal rescuer all the time. All the time. You know, if the Christian life's impossible, guess what? You need Jesus to enable you all the time. <laughs> We need our personal rescuer. Wow. And that's, of course, what Jesus did and what he loves to do. So I'm sure he grabbed, here he is, he grabbed Peter. He dragged him half submerged back to the boat and put him in the boat. Is that what you think he did? No, I think he walked on the water back to that boat. See, Jesus is the one who restores us back to the miraculous, impossible life when we trust him to be our rescuer. See, it's 0 100. Now, it's like this. If it's 199, you will be on the slopes of defeat. If it's 595 or 95.5, however you want to put it, you'll be on the slopes of discouragement and defeat. See, it's like this, friends. If right now your life is characterized by a lack of peace, unrest, not a lot of answers, not expectancy for God to work, you're on the wrong side of the slopes. See, if you're on the 0-100 side, it's like, man, I wonder what God's going to do tomorrow. Hey, I wonder what God's going to do tonight. It's like, I, can't want, I wonder what God's going to keep doing because I will tell you, 0-100, can I say this? And I'm not trying to in any way be irreverent. It unleashes God. And it depends upon God. God wants to do supernatural miracles in your life every day, multiple times. May I say this? When you open your Bible in the morning and meet with God, that's a miracle. It's a miracle. I'm telling you, friends, when you read those, those scriptures and it speaks to your heart and it meets a present need in your life, that's a miracle. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, friends, you're not living 0-100 because 0-100 is, man, I need God. I need his word. I need his truth. I need his presence. I need, I need God. I need answers to prayer. I can't do this without God. And without me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. So whatever the issues might be, whether your, your struggle is evangelism or your struggle is prayer or your struggle is the Bible and, and studying the Bible or your struggle is whatever it might be, the answer is not trying harder. Do you know what happens when you try harder to do the impossible? You still fail. You know what you need to do? 
Many times, in fact, I was talking to a, a guy, and he, he's read Zero One Hundred. He, he's just a really sweet fellow down in Arkansas, and I was working with him, and, and he said, Brother Van Gelder and I am trying to, to whatever. I can't even remember what it was. I said, that's your problem. You're trying. <laughs> now, I'm not talking about lack, lack of movement. I'm talking about where the tr trust is. See, if you're trying, you're not trusting, and if you're trusting, you're not trying. Trusting is, still has movement. But it's a movement of obedience and anticipation and expectancy that God is going to enable you spiritually to do the impossible. So what we're talking about is not passivity. It's not inactivity. It's his activity through me. See, that's the idea. It's a total dependence. So I put it this way. It's zero it's 0% zero my will. It's 100% his will. It's 0% dependence on my strength because I don't have spiritual strength anyway. And it's 100% dependence on his spiritual strength because he's got all and more than I'll ever need. See, it's 0, 100. I want to tell you something, friends. It's a learning curve. I get that. I'm telling you, friends, I'd rather be outside the boat and sink any day and have to look to Jesus to rescue me than being in the boat just living a life that everybody can explain. <laughs> And I'm telling you, I sink all the time, but I'm thankful that I've got a personal rescuer, and I'm telling you, you do too. And don't stay in the safety of the boat thinking that's where you ought to go. No, get out of the boat, because I'm going to tell you right now, walking on water is a blast. And everybody out here who's ever lived a Christian life where God enables you to do the impossible knows what I'm talking about. It's unbelievable. It's like, I wonder what God's going to do next. I wonder what God's going to do now. I wonder what's going to happen tomorrow. Wow. You live a life waking up saying, wonder what God's going to do. And I want to tell you some friends, I believe God wants to do great things. But what kills us is we're on the slopes of defeat. We're on the wrong side of the continental divide. Now, I wish I could tell you that I lived the Christian life uh, this way perfectly, but I certainly don't. Not, not even close. But I will tell you this. There was a day when I realized God began to try to teach me this truth, but I wasn't getting it. But I, I, I look back and I realize now what God was trying to do. Some of you have heard me tell this story. My pardon, pardon the repeat for those that have heard it, but for those that are not, not, maybe it'll be a help. I was 15 years old sitting in chapel at Marquette Manor Christian School. We had a huge Christian school. It was 7th to 12th. I don't know. The auditorium was packed. I want to say there was probably 200, maybe more kids in the room. I was a sophomore, 15 years old, was seated down on this side. My uncle was preaching from a wheelchair. My uncle was a paraplegic, was in a terrible automobile accident in his 20s, and broke his back, lost his use of his legs. He preached from a wheelchair, my dad's younger brother. And so um, I was seated down there, and the place was packed out. And, um, and uh, my uncle, I don't know why, but he, he looked down and said, Jimmy, he said, you stand and read such, such a passage of Scripture. Now, some of you aren't going to understand this because some of you out here are extroverts. You know what an extrovert is? If I were to ask how many of you out here are extroverts, here's what would happen. Ooh, 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 me. You know what I'm talking about? Extroverts are people, uh, people who never meet a stranger. You met people like that? I think the pastor's wife might be one. But anyway, I'm just <laughs> guessing. But anyway, some of you know what I'm talking about. Okay, uh, extrovert. Then there's ambiverts. You know what I'm talking about, an ambivert? That's somebody in between. Now, you've got some ambiverts who move lean extroverts, some that lean introvert, but they're kind of in between. They're kind of, you know, the people that most people are like, an ambivert, somewhere in between. And then you've got introverts. If I ask how many of you are ambiverts, you just kind of be up like this, you know what I'm talking about. But if I ask how many of you are introverts, there's no way you're raising your hand, no way, no way. <laughs> Anonymity is your middle name, you know what I'm talking about? Now, honestly, when I was in high school, that's where I leaned introvert like you know just let me alone okay and um, my dad was that way as well just by by nature of genetic whatever okay and so um, uh, when my uncle asked me to stand and read scripture in front of 200 of my classmates my classmates classmates that was that was like unbelievable it caught me off guard first of all and I remember I remember finding, flipping through the final the passage and Everybody's got an Adam's apple, but another apple came from I don't know where and just lodged it in my throat. I'm not sure where it came from. <laughs> I could feel, I could feel the temperature rising. You, you know, all you blondes out there and redheads know what I'm talking about. It's just like a thermometer. <laughs> I, I could feel it coming up. I could feel the heat coming off the back of my uh, neck. Man, tears started to brim up in both of my eyes. I thought, I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry. This is terrible. <laughs> I mean, horrific. Absolutely horrific. I stand to my feet, start opening the Bible and start to quote the, or read the verse, chapters of Scripture. And I think the first note was about an octave higher than it should have been. You know what I'm talking about? 
Just one of those, you know, when you're 15 years old, horrific moments. I remember sitting down. I mean, I was embarrassed. I remember shutting my Bible, sloping down. I shouldn't have done this, but sloped down in my pew, folded my arms and said, man, I hope that never happens again. Now, if I was God, I would think to myself, you know, I think I'll overlook that guy, find somebody else. But God has a sense of humor. You know what he does? He calls people to preach that can't do it. Did you know that? And I'm telling you, God started getting on me. And I'm does a whole journey to responding to the call, went down to a preacher's contest and whole journey to responding to the call. But, but I remember the night when I responded to the call to preach. I'll never forget it. There in that chapel, about 250 people packed out. My dad preached that night. That night I don't remember a thing my dad preached because I was wrestling with God. The end of the, invita the invitation, I knew what I had to do. I remember responding to the invitation, grabbing my dad's hand and looking up in my dad's face. And I said, Dad, tears were streaming down my face. I said, Dad, I think God's called me to preach. I've said this before, but I will never forget my dad's answer. Never. He said, your mother and I have known it for a long time. We've been praying for you. I wish I could go back and ask my dad, how did you know it? But I think I know how he knew it. He met with God. Because there is no way you would have seen that potential in me. 1970s polyester pants, you know what I'm talking about, bell bottoms, you know, comb my hair down to my eyebrows, you know what I'm talking about, that's back when I had hair. Hey, you know what I'm talking about, yeah. I don't think you'd have seen a lot of potential in me. How did my dad know it? You say, preacher, were you, were you excited? Were you just thrilled? Would you walk out, hallelujah, praise God, I'm called to preach? No, I was miserable. How would you like to yield to something you know you can't do? publicly so you can't get out of it. I'm telling you the truth. I went to the lobby and I thought to myself, oh, I got one more year, senior year, then freshman year, Bible college, junior, sophomore year, junior year, senior year, five years. Maybe something will happen. Maybe I'll get hit by lightning. Interchemistry will rearrange. You know, I don't know. Maybe a miracle will happen. I don't know. Honestly, I thought I had some time, but my dad didn't believe that. He believed you're called to preach. You need to do it. And I'll never forget my very first assignment. Somebody called my dad and said, Preacher, I'm going to be out of town. Could you send some of your staff member over to preach at church on Sunday morning? And I'll never forget, my dad said, Oh, my son Jim, 16, called to preach. I'll send him over. I'm sure the guy said, Why did I ask? <laughs> Word probably got around. I don't think we got too many invitations at that until I was in college. And people say, You can ask Dr. Van again. Okay. And so I remember scared half to death. It's so funny because my dad didn't go with me. He didn't send anybody with me. He just took a piece of paper and drew a map to the church. Now, I know most of you kids out here have never seen a map on paper. I know that's a shock to you, but we used to have maps on paper, and he drew me a little paper map to get over to this church. I remember driving over to that thing. I can't remember if it was the Buick, Buick LeSabre or the Plymouth Duster. kind of hope it was the Plymouth Duster because that was a really cool car. But anyway, and so uh, I drove over, you know. I had my patent leather shoes on. This is 70s. You know what I'm talking about. I got out, and I walked in there scared half to death. It was an old church that was just out in one of the older suburbs of Chicago, right outside the city limits, and had stained glass windows, probably built in the 30s or something like that. And I walked in. I thought I had taken a wrong turn and turned into an old folks' home. You know what I'm talking about? I walked in there, and there were only old people. Now, this is from a 16-year-old perspective. You understand. Okay, so please don't be offended if you're older because the youngest person in the room was in their 40s. But I'm telling you, friend, when you're 16, somebody's in their 40s. They got one foot in the grave and slipping fast. You know what I'm talking about? They're old. They're old. I thought the congregation was ancient. There weren't any teenagers. There weren't any kids. It's just old people. I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I'm sitting on the front looking at my message. I'm thinking, what do you preach to old people about? Uh, robbing Medicare, income tax, you know, cheating on your income. What do you, you know, what do you preach to old people? I didn't know. You know, at that time, I just thought, you know, you just ripped up on sin. That's how you preached, okay? And I didn't think I couldn't think of their sins, okay? Because I wasn't old at the time. And so I'm sitting down there trying to figure out what to do. And they're having the song service. And I hate to tell you, the song service was really slow, I mean, they were just, just really kind of, I'm not trying to be unkind at all, but it kind of sounded and felt like a funeral, and I kind of wondered if some of them were getting ready, you know what I'm talking about, but I shouldn't say that. But anyway, when you're 16, you think things you shouldn't, you know what I'm talking about? And so I'm thinking, man, what am I going to do? These people are old. And, and so uh, they get up, introduce me, and 
like I was some preacher, which I really wasn't. I was just a kid. And I remember taking my Bible, open it up, put my message right here, and I just plowed through it. That's all I knew to do. It was nothing there. But anyway, I plowed through it. 25 minutes, maybe 30. I finished the message, and I'm going to tell you something. I was embarrassed. There's only one problem going up in a good church. You know what good preaching is. And you know what good preaching isn't. And to use preaching vernacular, and some of you don't know what preacher talk, but I'm just going to tell you, I laid an egg, a big one. <laughs> I'm telling you, I wanted to go out the back. I really did. I wanted to sneak out the back, but I couldn't get away with it. You know why? I was a preacher's kid. I knew protocol. You guys know what protocol is? You got to stand at the door. Everybody comes by to you and lies to you. That's what happened. <laughs> That's protocol. If you didn't know that. Some of those dear old ladies, they meant well. I'm sure they did. They came by, they patted my hand, and they said, oh, sonny boy, wonderful, wonderful message. I'm thinking, I don't think you had your hearing aid turned on. Now, again, you have to understand, this is through the eyes of a 16-year-old, so please don't get offended, senior citizens. I'm about to get where you are, okay? So I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm just telling you a 16-year-old's thought process. I'm thinking this is a disaster. Let me out of here. But I couldn't leave. I knew it. So I waited pretty much everybody was gone. The 40-year-old who was the treasurer, I didn't know that till the end. He walks up to me, pulls out an envelope. He said, Brother Van Gelderen, here's your honorarium. Honorarium? I'm thinking, you mean I got paid for that? I thought I wouldn't pay a plug nickel for that message. But I took it. I knew it. Protocol. I'm a preacher's kid. I knew I had to take it. I remember sticking it in my pocket. Someone really very embarrassed. Got out to my car, opened the envelope. And when I did, I was shocked. It was like a ton of money. You say, how much was it? $50. You say, well, that's not a lot of money. 1976 pre-Jimmy Carter, that's money. <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's called inflation. Okay, you, you guys ever heard of inflation? Kind of seems like, this kind of reminds me of the Jimmy Carter era. But anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, but uh, man, 50 bucks back then, I'm going to tell you some of you kids, you could take 50 bucks and fill your car tank up 10 times. 79 cents a gallon. Wow. Unbelievable. Back in those days. And, uh, but anyway, I remember driving home. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I thought I was supposed to like it. And I remember saying to myself, God, I didn't like that. That was my beginning. Well, make a long story short, went off to Bible college. And big, uh, don't get me wrong. I saw some victories. And I was certainly encouraged. And some good things were happening. And I came home certainly encouraged. And at the end of the summer, though, my dad got up to the Marquette Manor Baptist Church. By this time, the church was going house afire. That little chapel had been doubled. It was 250 seat, 300. Now it was 500. And uh, he got up and said, okay, my son Jim's going to preach on the Sunday before he goes back to school. I want everybody to be there. Now, I'd grown enough. I was kind of excited about it, but I was nervous too. You know, it's one thing to bore people you'll never see till you get to heaven. By that time, they'll forgive you. It's another thing to bore the hometown crowd. You know what I'm talking about? I came to that church when I was six years old. These people I know, and a lot of these people I know in a long time. Well, I remember I started preparing. I didn't know how to prepare a message. I did the best I could, but it was a sorry. If you saw the notes, you'd th I should have kept them. They were so sorry looking. I finished preparing the message, had a burden in my heart, did a little bit of research, best I knew how at the time, which wasn't very much. But the day came, and I'll never forget, after the morning service, I went home. And after I went home, I remember um, I said to the family, hey, I got the basement done. I got to preach tonight. And of course, everybody said, okay, it's fine. I went down to the basement and I was desperate. God seemed a million miles away. I went down to that basement. I, don't understand. I didn't understand what I'm preaching tonight. But about three hours, I don't know how to explain it all. I, it wasn't a sophisticated prayer meeting, but it was probably the longest I'd ever prayed in my life. I said, God, you got to do something. God, where are you? God, I can't do this tonight. God, I don't got, I, I, I don't, I don't got anything, God. I, I got nothing. God, you got to do something. I pled with God for three hours. You say, why don't you work on your message? It was on life support. Three hours couldn't have resuscitated it. I'm telling you the truth. If God didn't show up, I was done, and I knew it. I pled with God. I begged God. I remember about 5 o'clock, somebody yelled down the stairs, Jimmy, time to go. That's what they used to call me, Jimmy. But anyway, Jimmy, uh, time to go. And I remember I walked up those wooden steps. I've said this before. I've never been executed, but I think I know what it feels like to go to your execution. I'm walking up those wooden stairs thinking, what have you gotten yourself into? I had my story outlined in the Bible there in Colossians 3. And, man, I'm going over to church, driving over there. God, you've got to do something. God, don't you? Where are you? God, I need you to show up. I didn't understand what I'm preaching tonight, but I did understand two things. Number one, I couldn't do it. Number two, if God didn't show up, I was done. I knew those two things. I'm telling you, I came up. My dad was 
totally nonchalant, wasn't burning at all, I'm dying. I sit next to him. My dad gets up, introduces me. You thought you, he was introducing a well-known evangelist. But if you didn't know my dad, you're not going to understand it. He come, I come put my Bible after he introduced me. I put it right here, put my notes right here. And my dad put his hands in a certain spot. There were even marks on the pulpit. You knew exactly where to put your hands. He didn't move. And so he puts his, I put my hands there and I started to read my text and started to preach. Now I'm telling you the honest truth. It was not 45 seconds into the message before all of a sudden I realized something. I am not in this pulpit alone. And how do I say this, friends? I was free. Man, I left the pulpit, came over to this side, looked out on this side. It was just, there was two stretches, you know, two sides, like it was a longer auditorium. And looked over on this side, and man, I'm telling you, there were a lot of sinners on this side of the auditorium, kind of like tonight. But anyway, and man, I started preaching. And I remember as I started preaching, I remember saying things, and I'm thinking, whoa, that was really good. Where did that come from? That wasn't in the notes, but that was good. Got to remember that next time. And I'm preaching over here, come over to this side, man, same thing. Man, I started preaching over here, saying things I never, I thought, where did that come from? I preached 45 minutes, and I'm going to be honest with you, loved every second of it. I finished that message, and I don't know how to explain it. I gave an invitation that I will never forget. I remember people pouring down those aisles that I'd known all my life, or most of my life. Some of them tears in their eyes, some tears trickling down their cheeks. And I remember that night like it was yesterday. And I will tell you, friends, I would like to tell you that that night I learned something I've never forgotten, but that would not be true. But I can tell you this. You know what God was trying to teach me? Zero, 100. He was trying to teach me, if you'll just trust me to do it all, I'll do it. I'm telling you, friends, I wish I'd lived a whole lot more consistent than I have, but I will say this. I believe it with all my heart. Which side of the continental divide are you on? It's really not complicated. If you're struggling with this, I want to give you really good news. You're the zero. I don't know about you. I really like being the zero. <laughs> because you know what? That kind of fits me. <laughs> and it fits you too. Because without him, we can't do anything. But I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Zero, 100.